Hello and welcome to the weekly Dairy Dialogue podcast, a mix of news, interviews and me talking too much. And this is the 84th Dairy Dialogue and I'm Jim Cornall, editor of the global dairy news site Dairy Reporter. As far as 84 goes, it generally makes me think of George Orwell's 1984, but it's also the country code for Vietnam, which makes the news later in the show, and it's also the name of a place in Pennsylvania. Not that this is unique, there are plenty of place names in the US that are numbers, there's 88, 100, 96, 66, and there are two 76s, and plenty more around the US and also around the world. Wouldn't it be great if you were 84 years old and lived at 84 84th Street in 84? Unlikely, though. Anyway, on to what we have for you today. We have the news, as always. We have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone, as always. And we have four guests on the show this week. And they are Jan Lindquist, food technologist at Tetra Pak, Helsa's CEO, Mika Maninen, Thomas Burke, food safety scientist at the Institute of Food Technologists, and Dr. Jose Maria Lagaron, YPAC project coordinator. Not really much to report on this week. We still have the birds sitting outside the office. I have a purring cat in the office this morning, and there's also the wonderful background noise of a child watching television. So I think I'm going to have to soundproof my office in the near future. It was a holiday here in the UK on Monday, not that anyone really noticed. There were plenty of people not really paying attention to the lockdown. I guess that's the same in many places, especially when the weather's nice, which it has been here, thankfully. Nothing else really to share other than a dead mouse in my office. Although it's not the mammal kind, it's the one I use with my computer. Another one is on its way, I am told. Although the post has been kind of sporadic lately. I did get a package this week that was sent well over four weeks ago. So we'll head straight into some of the news stories we've had on Dairy Reporter over the past seven days. Fonterra published financial results. Nestle is investing in plant-based in China. China has also given the go-ahead for 54 Turkish dairy companies to start exporting to the country. Tetra Pak joined the European Alliance for a Green Recovery. U.S. dairy groups are looking for more assistance beyond the $16 billion agriculture payments plan. In France, ESI Nutrition is increasing production capacity and launching new bottle options. Freeform Packaging launched a new high-barrier packaging solution. Agrico, who we featured on the podcast a little while ago, is urging producers in the UK to prepare for an expected surge in demand for cold storage solutions. We had an interview with Friesland Campina Ingredients on new trends. There was a report on the school milk program in Hanoi in Vietnam. And in Australia, farmers and processors are being urged by the ACCC to know the dairy code rights and obligations. And the Organic Dairy Farmers of Australia company has entered voluntary administration. Christine's Food Hygiene says hard surface disinfection and hand sanitation will be crucial after the lockdown ends. And we will have an interview on that next week. And of course you can read these and many more on DairyReporter.com. So on with the show. With the coronavirus pandemic still hitting the economy for a while to come, saving money is pretty important. And this is definitely the case in the dairy industry as well. One company looking to help its customers save is Tetra Pak. And we found out from Jan Lindquist, food technologist at Tetra Pak, about total cost of ownership and what companies can do to save and improve their environmental footprint at the same time. Obviously, Tetra Pak, a large company and doing a lot with a lot of different companies around the world. Money is tighter than it ever was because of the coronavirus pandemic. How is Tetra Pak able to help companies with savings at this critical time? Saving money is definitely one of the priorities for for all businesses. But before I think we go into the lovely world of cost savings, I would just like to emphasize that uh, keeping the highest standard of food safety and quality is equally essential to cost saving uh, when it comes to the food and beverage industry. So to deliver this, we have uh, two priorities. 
and that is first to uh, protect the food by ensuring that we help our customers to maintain this food supply for the communities worldwide. And the second is uh, to protect the people and by keeping people safe, both uh, our own, of course, employees, but uh, also those of our customers and our stakeholders. To achieve these goals, we continue to work very closely with uh, our customers and our suppliers, governments and, and, and local authorities. And uh, it includes undertaking, especially in these uh, certain times with COVID, uh, important measures at uh, our facilities and in the course of our operations at customer sites uh, to ensure safety and in the end uh, availability of food packing supply in this time of need. Then when it comes to, to the cost saving, I would say that can be made in uh, many ways. And uh, today I will zoom in on um, how we can help customers to assess and evaluate the total cost of ownership, TCO, before, for example, making a new investment or a change in the manufacturer production as, as one way to, to help our customers to, to save cost. I think it's important for food manufacturers to think about the long term and not just only focus on, on the price tag or the equipment that, of course, could easily be done, but instead to consider the, the total cost of ownership over the whole lifetime of the machine. And doing so, it can save actually producers of food products, for example, in the business where I'm operating in emulsified sauces, dressings, spreadable cheese, soups and sauces, hummus, for example, it can save them large sums of money. How can that be? If we look uh, for the cost of uh, operating uh, food processing equipment, uh, of course, it's depending on, on the equipment and what kind of equipment it is. But in general, over its lifetime, it exceeds the purchase price many, many times over. And uh, that could be for cost of like steam, water, maintenance, waste, labor, ingredient losses, and, and those kind of cost elements, they quickly accumulate during a machine's life. And they could actually exceed the purchase price uh, by, in some cases, 15 to 20 times over. Uh, so here, the total cost of ownership study and the tool that we have available to do this uh, helps us to analyze and to evaluate uh, the cost consequences long term of uh, it can be for example two different technologies that you select from different equipment choices that is available cleaning strategies that you consider and so on and so forth in the, in the end it really helps us together with uh, our customers to find the optimal solution from a total cost of ownership perspective the advanced software tool is that does that tie in with the tco model approach yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the TCO model approach, the key is in, in this TCO study is to look at um, not only the investment cost, but instead focus on the, on the total cost that is associated over the lifetime of equipment. And, and that could be for 10, 20 years. So when we, when we do a TCO study, first of all, we start to define the system that uh, to be assessed and uh, we clearly define the limits. It could be one unit or on a whole production line, for example. And then we make a realistic production scenario, uh, how we intend to run the equipment. And in this case, producers can either have a lot of data from the existing production that they can be fed into to analyze or that you need to make uh, qualified uh, estimations. And coming back then to TCO tool, because when we have gathered all this information, then we can use the tool to calculate and to analyze the cost that is associated with operation of, of the equipment. And the total cost of ownership calculation tool that can really predict uh, the long-term cost uh, prior to the investment. And uh, one also good thing here is that when we have made this study, 
we, together with the customer, will understand where are the big costs, and then we can target this cost with special measures to uh, optimize the, the equipment or the overall production setup to, in the end, minimize the cost. And what sort of savings, what kind of savings are you able to help your customers get and from what areas of their business can you get those savings? There are many areas that we can help our customers to save cost. Uh, today, I would like to zoom in in the prepared food category. And what's mean by prepared food then? Yeah, I would say it's, um, there is a lot of variety of products within prepared food category. As I mentioned, it can be uh, dressings and soups and sauces, hummus, spoiled cheese and so forth. And we uh, here at Tetra Pak, we can provide processing solutions to prepared food categories. Yeah, and I would say that it's very much depending on this application, what product we are talking about, what savings we can be done, and also what the situation that the customer comes from. So, and I would say, in my opinion, it's very crucial for a manufacturer to work uh, with a solution provider who has a very strong application focus and, and can combine the, the food technology knowledge and, of course, then the process know-how to really create an optimal solution for them because that often go hand in hand. And I think this capability can find then uh, uh, solutions to, for example, reduce uh, the energy reduce water consumption or or maybe increase the efficiency of the raw material utilization i'm guessing that obviously no no two situations are the same what are some of the basic things that you work on with smaller companies to reduce costs and areas they can find savings yeah i think um, i mean by choosing a more efficient machine it could be a more efficient production setup I think companies of all sizes can reduce their cost, potentially save hundreds of thousands of, over many years. And I think the key is not only to focus on the investment, uh, but instead understand the total cost over its lifetime. And it also means that if you choose the wrong equipment or make the wrong specification of the equipment, that can inflate cost uh, for, for many, many years. So, so therefore, I think that all companies, if they are small or if they are large, they should always undertake a total cost of ownership study before any big investment. And uh, this is something that we offer regardless of the size of the customer. For example, um, we've calculated the impact of a heat recovery system in a food pasteurizer that can have a major impact of uh, the energy and water consumption. And at the same time, it has, for example, to be balanced against there can be a potential increase in ingredient losses. So what I, I've done is that uh, I calculated an example uh, with a pasteurizer, and it's based on a scenario with a capacity of 6,000 kilos per hour, and it's running the year-round production. And if we do the study, we see that the utility cost is on a yearly basis about half a million euro. And if we then include uh, the operators, maintenance and so forth, it adds up to, yes, say seven, eight hundred thousand euro on a yearly basis in operation cost. And then by investing in a heat recovery system, that can actually mean that you can reduce this operational cost with, say, about 20 percent. And in pure money, that means a saving on a yearly basis of uh, 150,000 euro. If we're talking about a small company, this is very big money to save. And at the same time, in a large company with big production capacities, this adds up to very big sums. I think a lot of companies seem to think that they, they need to become more sustainable because it's something that's important to the end consumer, but they think perhaps sometimes that that is not going to be cost effective. Can you be more environmentally friendly and get savings and reduce your environmental footprint? Yeah. Uh, first, I think it's good to define uh, what does environmental friendly or environmentally sound means. So for modern consumers, 
they means uh, that they increasingly expect the food industry to minimize the resources uh, that is used in the food production and processing. Yeah? So consequently, for the, for the food manufacturers, this means that they need to focus harder than ever on reducing their environmental footprint by reducing, for example, energy and, and water use. Uh, while, of course, keeping track of the influence of the choices they make on the product quality. So, for example, energy consumption is often a very high cost uh, in production, as I mentioned in, in the example before. Uh, and you need it both for heat treatment of food, you need to clean the food, and you may to sterilize the, the system before use. And if you can reduce this amount of energy, like in the example, uh, you reduce both the cost of the utility, but also the environmental impact. So I think that uh, with this total cost of ownership approach, it helps our customer to get the key facts so they can make a more informed decision to save cost uh, with a solution that at the same time can be environmentally sound. Coronavirus is something that has made companies very much more aware of their finances. Is this something that companies can do and make those changes to recover costs relatively quickly? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, yes, in many cases they are absolutely. And, and the result of a TCO study can in some cases reveal that there is a very short payback of a change or new investment. Uh, we can talk about month or even directly after investment itself, uh, while in other cases the saving is made more in a, uh, on a longer term perspective. So, uh, and that is uh, really how, the way how a total cost of ownership uh, study works, that it uh, analyzes all aspects of a customer's production process and the cost associated with that. And that helps them to predict the paybacks for a change in, like we discussed, a different technology. And that also empower them to make the best decision. And mentioned coronavirus a few times, but mm. obviously uh, social distancing and, and lack of travel has become quite important. Are you able to work with your customers without physically being in their facility at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the total cost of ownership study is a process uh, that is truly a collaboration between ourselves and, and our customer. But even in these unprecedented times, uh, where of course safety is paramount, uh, we are still able to work closely with them. And uh, the customer can analyze their current production and come up with numbers. And then we take uh, from our uh, our portfolio, our equipment, and we combine them and we can perform absolutely the uh, TCO study. And I think more widely in this situation, really extraordinary measures are needed to ensure that we can continue to live or, uh, deliver on our promise to protect what's good. And to do this, one of Tetra Pak's priorities is to keep people safe, both, of course, our own employees and, and those of our customers and other stakeholders. Next, we go over to the US for a chat with Thomas Burke, food safety scientist at the Institute of Food Technologists, on the current challenges surrounding food safety and the role increased traceability can play in mitigating these risks at a time when the supply chain is stretched significantly. I work for an office called the Global Food Traceability Center, and my title is Food Traceability and Safety Scientist, so I conduct research initiatives in food traceability for uh, IFT. The GFTC is kind of a public-private partnership that arbitrates industry initiatives around traceability, and a lot of that gets into food safety, but also touches on sustainability and also supply chain efficiencies. Obviously, the big topic at the moment is coronavirus. Have there been any big changes with respect to food safety? Yes, uh, we've seen a lot of changes in the in the food system in general. I mean, it's it's a lot to adapt to. It's really an unprecedented situation, and there are a lot of the food safety system 
is dependent on collaboration, you know, in-person consultations, and we're just seeing a lot of demand shifts as well. There's been a lot of response by associations such as ours, the government, government regulators, state governments, and the industry to, you know, think about and modify practices as needed so that it is accomplishing both like employee health needs and also maintaining their production capabilities and distribution capabilities while reacting to the demands in the food system landscape. Is there a danger with something like a big epidemic like this that food safety gets kind of marginalized and regulations become looser because of it? One thing that I've noticed in our response to COVID is that consumers are very aware of their food and of the challenges around food safety. And I think that's been really magnified in how much discussion there was about the safety of, you know, transporting uh, groceries to your personal residence and in delivery services as well. But definitely seeing the priority of food safety has been paramount um, in the food industry in general. There's a lot that's being challenged. Certain supply chains that we're going towards food service, food service customers are just not having quite that much demand. You know, restaurants are obviously closed all across the country um, and delivery services aren't really, you know, making up that demand. And then consequently on the retail end, um, a lot of products that are in grocery stores are seeing a very, very high demand in levels that hadn't been seen. So being able to shift to some of those demands and product lines can be quite challenging as well. So I, I think there's been a lot of focus on ensuring that the food safety system is solid and that it's something that we can count on in such a changing overall landscape. I think most of the food industry really wants to go above and beyond what's regulatorily driven because they have that commitment to their customers. And, you know, when you have a food safety emergency that's associated with your company, it can be very detrimental to your reputation and can impact your business for years. As different countries are coming out of this crisis at different times and in different ways, in many countries, there's a great deal of pressure on governments to get the economy started again. Is there also a danger that that might be happening too quickly or that food safety becomes secondary? Yeah, and it kind of goes into a larger concept that I think about in my work. You know, we're in a world where we think in, you know, statistical probabilities and risks. And, you know, a lot of navigating this crisis is based on really evaluating which risks are the important risks and, you know, how to prioritize in such a landscape of uncertainty. And so in this particular crisis, you know, you have human health, you've got human health related to industry practices like in food safety, and then you have economic concerns, which can be quite considerable. So, trying to balance all of those factors together. And this isn't really an area that we've seen a lot of research in previously. You know, epidemiologists think about disease modeling and they're thinking about responses to it. They're not really anticipating what is, you know, the GDP decline of the, of the nation state necessarily. I mean, I think there are people that touch into that, but that's definitely, you know, their, their priority is on addressing and mitigating the spread of infectious diseases, not on economic variables. And conversely, economists are thinking about, you know, the macro allocation of resources and how, you know, a major disruption that impacts, you know, over half of the workforce is, you know, going to, you know, negatively affect the, the, the country's well-being. So how to navigate both of those realms and, you know, other realms that touch into those is, is quite challenging. Potentially, once once the crisis is over, and let's hope it's sooner rather than later, but you think that there will be an increased scrutiny for the public on food safety? Because obviously people are concerned now about health and they're looking to products that are healthy. Do you think that that will extend to food safety as well, that they'll be expecting more? One of the things I, I found interesting was how much interest there is in food contact surfaces and the persistence of pathogens and, you know, what that means for their health. And so some of these, like, concepts I don't think have really been thought about in the, in the public before. This has really given a chance for people to think about the systems that were kind of automatic to them previous to this crisis. I think part of what enables food safety is that you know, collaborative relationship across all the stakeholders, and that includes the consumer base. It allows them to um, articulate what their real what their real needs are in food safety, and it makes it easier for them to watch for it too. 
quest for certain initiatives. And it, I think it will help them think about it in a more holistic approach. It's not just like, is the company being safe or not, but also was the food handler being safe or not, or am I personally being safe or not with my food safety practices? So I'm really hoping that it will kind of uh, illuminate this kind of human food interaction component of food safety that maybe hadn't really been thought about in the consumer base before. Obviously, notwithstanding the coronavirus crisis that we've been enduring, but do you think that in general, people are a lot more aware of food safety now? They seem to understand listeria and tainted food and uh, issues that we saw several years ago in China with infant formula? What we can really speak definitively towards is I think the attention around food safety incidents has definitely grown and the expectations of consumers uh, for safe food is also grown, especially from, you know, consumer packaged goods or other products that they buy, in the, you know, fresh foods that they buy in the grocery store. They have a, a certain expectation and also and worry about potential pathogen risk. And I think the social media has given a ability to communicate about food safety risk in a way that hasn't really been seen before. I, I think that uh, generally consumers are a little bit more aware that there's a lot more resources available to them to become educated on it. It does also have the caveat that there's more opportunities for consumers to be ill-informed or misinformed about food safety risks, or they may prioritize smaller risks over larger or more obvious larger ones. But just the general availability of information and the, you know, trends in wanting to know more about your food, I think, have really brought these issues to the forefront of a lot of consumers' minds. What do you think are the major challenges in food safety at the moment? Yeah, I've touched on some of them. And I think one of the, one of the hardest things, I think, in a food safety context is that, you know, the way people consume food and, you know, the demands in food change quite quickly now. And we see that as tech companies become more and more interested in food and food distribution and delivery, you know, they have a kind of a disruptive mindset. And, you know, you don't want to necessarily be disruptive when it comes to food safety, uh, unless it's something that's replacing a ready practice that's, you know, you know, immediately integratable. When you have like a new phenomenon, like say enhanced delivery services, right, um, of all sorts of food, um, and that's based on hiring contractors. It's really quite a new environment and a new way of thinking about food distribution and being able to navigate and, you know, create guidelines that work across the diversity of, you know, last mile distribution. You just need to be able to adapt to it very quickly. And so when you're thinking about new practices in food safety, you also want to ensure that you are sticking to the science and you're sticking to, you know, the intended uh critical control point that you're wanting to assess and, and mitigate. You know, being able to adapt to shifts in what consumers want and being able to ensure that that food safety is, is keeping with both the regulatory environment, but also where the regulatory environment does not yet reach is a fairly high challenge. I think that's why the, you know, the new era of smarter food safety is really quite a positive development because then we can as we are able to digitize the food processes, uh, we're going to be able to, to react to changes in the consumer demands and also cha uh, changes in the food business environment easier. So it's kind of a challenge and an opportunity. I guess the recent CDC foodborne disease report shows that foodborne disease is on the rise. Um, is there any reason for that? And what can we do to address it? Yeah, so this is a trend that we've been seeing over the last decade in the least where detections of certain foodborne pathogens are going up. And some of that is somewhat anticipated because laboratory methods just continue to improve at a more than exponential rate. Um, sequencing technologies, culture-independent detection testing, and syndromic panels are really increasing in prevalence. So, you know, really one of the things that you know, they identify in the report as well is when a patient is sick and when they have general gastrointestinal distress and they go to their physician prior to the current state, they may or may not test for a given foodborne pathogen or it may take quite the astute physician to be able to identify and order the correct test in order for them to identify that particular pathogen. 
And nowadays, like, you have these, these things called syndromic panels where you can really test for a variety of pathogens all at once. And that, that really increases the ability to detect all sorts of foodborne pathogens. And if you are testing more, if you're looking more, you're going to have more detection. So that's a large part of what we're seeing. But, you know, that you can't also rule out that there are increases in individual pathogens that are happening. One of the pathogens in the report identified is cyclospora, although it, it you know, with the advent of culture-independent testing, whole genome sequencing, and syndromic panels, it may be easier to detect clusters and outbreaks of particular foodborne pathogens, but you also do not necessarily know all the other factors that contribute to what may be arising in the prevalence of those pathogens. So it's really kind of a mix. The overall estimate for foodborne illness in the United States is still 48 million illnesses with 128,000 hospitalizations and 3,000 deaths. And really, as we are improving the uh, laboratory methodologies and the epidemiologic methodologies, we're going to see more identification of clusters and outbreaks in foodborne illness. These are really kind of, in some ways, positives in that you can more clearly identify what their antecedent causes were and you can enact policies to better address them. So how does traceability fit into this in terms of pinpointing issues and also being able to scrutinize things right from farm to fork? Yeah. Whenever you're thinking about a food safety emergency, there's really like three big components. You've got you know, laboratory detection of the pathogen, you have epidemiology to link to the food vehicle, and you have um, the traceback investigation. And so that last component has been a challenging component to improve versus the, the, the first two. The first two are very scientific-based, and traceability is, you know, is also scientific, but there's components to business operations, you know, food production operations, and investment in IT architectures that are necessary for improving the overall system. So, you know, when you're conducting a traceback, that allows you to locate the given product that you are wanting to take off the shelves and locate it where it is in the supply chain and remove it from the supply chain so that consumers don't consume it. Traceability also has a lot of potential to improve supply chain practices at large, to find inefficiencies, to, you know, improve the time from production to consumer. What we're really finding is that this move from thinking about traceability as, you know, merely a regulatory compliance or record-keeping requirement to, you know, enabling, you know, all sorts of supply chain initiatives and moving really more to an end-to-end traceability capability. And this is really being magnified by the fact that we've had recent outbreaks where traceback was very difficult to perform um, and it was time-consuming. And, and when you're thinking about, especially like a fresh product, you really need to be able to query the supply chain actors' data systems in, in a rapid way so that you can quickly find the convergence point, trace forward to find the compromised product. So traceability definitely gives you a lot of data as well. So it's really kind of being seen as rather than spotting problems as they occur and you know, responding reactively, traceability is being kind of seen as a way of enabling food safety initiatives in a more proactive and preventative way. The role that you play is some of that in kind of highlighting some of those issues in order for food safety to improve, or is it more on the detection side? My work really works on pre-competitive business processes to feed into standards that can enable innovation. So I work a lot in our traceability work. One of our major projects is the Global Dialogue on Seafood Traceability, which is an effort to unify the approach to traceability systems from end to end and with an emphasis on interoperability. So a lot of my work really kind of bridges on, you know, understanding the information technology dimension of food systems, the business realities of how data can be collected at each stakeholder component, how that feeds into the regulatory compliance component of traceability, and then also um, designing data standards around those realities so that there can be common expectations among IT solution providers to implement traceability. So work really primarily in that kind of standard space, but we work with a lot of tech companies so that the standards that we are helping to facilitate, you know, work with their systems and work with the, the technology landscape as it exists. There is a inherent interest and need, even across company sizes, to have more traceability because on a smaller scale, there 
wanting to be able to, you know, increase their market access by proving the providence of their product and that it was sustainably harvested. And for persons in the middle of the supply chain want to be able to have assurance that the product that they're sourcing was legally caught. And and then retailers obviously want to be able to mitigate risk in their supply chains, um, want to be able to, not just in food safety, but also in sustainability and human rights uh, in their supply chain. So the, the, these standards really help enable solutions at each of the supply chain nodes. And with its emphasis on interoperability, it can really enable this end-to-end traceability capability. Oat yogurt alternative maker Helsa has planted Scandinavian-style organic oat seeds at its pilot farm for its dairy-to-oat conversion program in upstate New York. And to tell us more about the project and the company is its CEO, Mika Mananen. So Helsa Foods is owned by my wife, Helena, and myself. We started the company a few years back when we decided that we really want to be back in the game with oat-based drinks and oat-based yogurts. We brought in the first oat milk to U.S. market already 10 years ago and had a hell of a time with it. But our European counterpart decided to move out of the market in U.S. and and we literally lost the source. And so we have to withdraw from the market. And then we went back to the drawing board and started Helsa actually today, five years ago. And we wanted to create a product that has zero artificial ingredients. The oats are used as whole grain oats. So we do not break the oats with enzymes. Uh, We don't use gelatin gums or or fillers. Our oats are used as whole grain oats as they are. So when you eat a cup of our oat yogurt, it is literally the same as eating a bowl of oatmeal, except that it tastes and looks like regular yogurt. So when we started five years ago, had I actually known how difficult it would be, I don't know if I would have done it. That's the oldest cliche in the world now, isn't it? We spend three years in R&D, full-time R&D, and then eventually we're able to make this happen. Um, we have two patents on a product, one on the process and one actually on the oats themselves. And um, Helsa comes from Swedish word health. You can say Helsa mamma, say hi to your mom. Helen and myself, and we both come from Finland, the west coast of Finland, which is a Swedish-speaking part of Finland. We started the company, and then two years ago, Danone came on board. They came in, and they have a minor investment. Um, We operate completely separate from them, but they they saw the opportunity here, and and they were the first investors, um, gave us a leg up, and we were able to push ourselves to the market last year. And then we closed our first real funding round in December with Gary Hirschberg. Stonyfield fame and co-founder um, being the lead investor on that and um, Andrew Abram from Orgain who just divested part of that company came on as, as well uh, but the company is still owned by Helena and myself um, I'm the CEO and Helena is the president and um, here we are on these terminal times trying to run a run a startup that you know the up and downs are very funky at the moment because the the world has gone very very different than it was just you know short eight weeks ago yeah, exactly. Where, where is it available in uh, in the U.S.? We are heavily concentrating on the East Coast. Um, Manhattan is is and has been our um, main market, from Pennsylvania to all the way to uh, Boston is really where we at right now. Of the expansion that was obviously planned for this spring, for the rest of the country, we're supposed to go really heavily on the West Coast as well. Um, everything was set up for that. Obviously, was put on hold because the uh, COVID nineteen. In the press release that came out, you mentioned the broken supply chain. Um, is mm. that is that why you're trying to get oats in heavily involved in U.S. agriculture? Yeah, it, it is. It's it's part of the reasons. This really has been at, at work, and it, 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 the timing is it could not be better for us. So one of our cornerstones is not only that we have a 100% clean product and a label and a process, we really do not fiddle with any of the, the beautiful you know, ingredients that we use, but also we need to be sustainable. We want to, we want to create, we, we're very much of a mission-based business in a sense. Don't, don't take me wrong, we, we, we want to be profitable as well. But I think that, that we, have to, we also have to respect the planet. So that is part of the, the mission here. Now, the third piece is, that unfortunately dairy farmers are having a very hard time right now in the U.S. And it's, it's very unfortunate because these are multi-generation farms. And I know many, many, many farmers 
and you know these guys are struggling they're we're losing multiple farms every day on, on bankruptcy right now and the supply chain is broken in a sense that unfortunately food service business completely went away because of the closures of all the restaurants and and schools and 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 then what and you have very large producers, very few large producers who control the business. Well, they can't overnight change from their packaging sizes from being in a, you know, five gallon box and a, and a plastic bag inside of it that they um, deliver to schools or, or, or restaurants or camps or something like that. They can't go into consumer size, you know, half a gallon or gallon cable top box. So, so they have no way of reaching the consumer side. So unfortunately, if you are a dairy farmer who's been supplying the food service business, you really are a lot. So just, there's, no, there's no channel how to distribute. And what we try to do here is not we're, not, we're not in the business of converting a dairy farm or because we only also, we focus solely on organic dairy farms because organic is really our game. But we're not trying to convert anybody. What we're trying to do is trying to diversify. So you have your dairy business. Dairy business is not going to go anywhere. I mean, we'll always have dairy. We'll always have yogurt. And we always have, have great milk. But it's changing. It is, the consumer habits are changing. So the writing's not even on the wall anymore. As I, as I say that a lot of times, it feels to me that some people don't understand that the last milk tanker has left the farm, but it's carrying grains. What we try to do is, like with our first pilot farm upstate New York, is that these guys have a slice of land um, that's organic, and we use the manure from the organic dairy dairy operations, and we're growing oats, and they're growing oats for us because we also want to be 100% self-reliant on our own source. Diversing your existing dairy farm business model, grow grains. Go plant-based on the side. These things can and should coexist. There's too much of this villainization going on right now that, that, I, that I hear from some people like to uh, make a lot of noise and, and, and villainize the other side, which is, I think, it's completely pointless. Um, no, no one's against anybody here. You know, the, the times have changed. You, you're selling black and white TV when, when everybody wants to have a 52-inch flat screen. Consumer habits change. So either you fight and you just keep yelling in the corner like, no, you have to buy my black and white TV, or you start manufacturing and selling color TVs. It's no different than that. It's a business. The business has changed. I feel terrible what's going on, and we feel terrible what's going on with the, uh, with the dairy business right now, but I think there's a solution to that is that they, you know, diversified, have, have plant-based stuff on the side, and our, our game is oats. Obviously, oats don't grow well they do grow in a lot of places but there's sort of an optimal place for an optimal zone for oats is that uh, reflected in in north america yeah good good question so briefly about the oats in in u.s so 70 percent of the oats that we consume in north america now north america in this case meaning united states and canada but let's focus on united states so united states imports 70% of its oats. And that 70% comes from Scandinavia. We are no different. We are part of a co-op in Scandinavia where we right now import our organic oats. The reason is because we can't find equal quality, good quality with the same flavor profile and protein profile existing oats in U.S. Oats in U.S. have for generations been grown only for feed. So only about 10% of the oats that are grown in U.S., actually are consumed here. And they, th those are usually very small plays. The sourcing is an issue for us. Um, we have no problem getting enough oats from Scandinavia. We just don't want to do it in the long term. We want to grow this business and we want to grow everything here domestically and it, and it helps both sides. Now, what comes to the climate? Oats are very, very, very forgiving in the sense that they take, a, they take Mother Nat Nature's beating really well. But yeah, they are happier, and especially the breed of oats that we grow are happiest in the northern side of the U.S. So yeah, upstate New York, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all these places are, are very suitable for us. We also like when there is a winter. Um, winter is a great way of, of, of nature, of cleaning the soil. It, it kills a lot of the bacteria and a lot of the uh, impurities that's in it. Um, and since we are organic, we do not use the pesticides and, and herbicides that, that are used for the conventional crop. And then the third piece is that 
we are and want to be um, sustainable. So our fields, uh, we, have a, we are completely water neutral. We, we don't irrigate the fields. It rains enough in Scandinavia, and hence we also want to be in a climate when we are in the U.S. where it rains enough. So none, none of the fields have to be irrigated. You just planted seeds for the first time. Is that on a dairy farm that's converting or converting some of its farm to oats? So our pilot farm, we actually just planted last week. So we have um, a couple different fields. Uh, we we testing out a few different breeds of breeds of seed that we that, that we know that that we think they're going to do well. So we'll know that the results in the fall. But we planted it last week. This is our first farm. Um, it is ex- existing, very well run organic dairy farm, and we are using part of the land that they that they have an access to for this test. These guys are not converting, and I would never recommend these these guys, you know, Eric and Jamie, to convert from their from their organic dairy business, which, which they do really well, and it's it's a beautiful farm. This is diversifying. This is a smart business move. You mentioned Danone earlier, and a lot of bigger companies have started, rightly so, to to say, well, hey, this isn't just a fad anymore. This is here to stay, and it's growing. So you get companies like Danone that buy White Wave and that diversify, and you get, I mean, even companies in Scandinavia like Arla and Valio, they've started to make their own plant-based products. So... If yep. if the producers are starting to diversify, why shouldn't the farmers? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And also, and and then you have companies like Danone, which is um, we didn't even know this when we when we started this and and took investment from these guys. Um, they have the same part of their mission is is is, is very visible right now, and it's, it's part of the same as ours is that we need to get rid of the uh, the monoculture on in, in, in agriculture. We we have to heal the soil. It's going to take years. It's going to take a long time to fix what we've done to the soil by just planting one type of crop and, and spraying with the glyphosate and you know making Monsanto um, people rich. We have to change also that. But that is a, that's a really big piece right now. For example, a company like like Danone, you know, they are truly trying to trying to do lessen the impact because they understand also that they're in a dairy business. It's obviously difficult for companies that size. Because it's, 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 well, think about somebody that's a multi, and I'm not talking only Danone, anybody, multi, multinational company that's a very large in size. You make the decision in that's going to do great in Europe. And at the same time, you're causing basically a civil war in Southeast Asia because it doesn't fit to that model at all. So these guys, those boats move, they, they, they just turn so slowly. So they've noticed that if you want to do an impact and you want to get some sort of a new innovation in the play, they end up buying smaller companies because our small companies move fast and we can nimble and we can do things that you, you can't get through the, the, the corporate machinery. And it's the same thing when you, when you kind of pick it back in the dairy industry here. There are a lot of huge scale, industrial scale dairy farms, but there are also smaller farms that have, you know, 150 to 300 heads. Those guys can do a lot of good stuff and fast because they can turn on a dime in a sense, much faster than these bigger guys. And what's the reaction been like to, uh, you mentioned earlier about not wanting it to sound like it's confrontational or it's sort of dairy against plant-based, but what's the reaction been like to you trying to help with that diversification? The feedback that I get from, from the farmers who are not suffering is really upbeat. And if you go to healthsoffoods.com or you go to Health of Foods, you know, YouTube channel um, or Google my name, Mika and Helsa, um, you'll see the videos and you'll see our farmers and you'll see, you know, we really open about it. We, we, we show it. We show everything we do. Because I think that that's the only way we can, can spread the knowledge and then hopefully other people jump into the boat and, and all that. But when the news broke in February that we're planning to do this kind of program, um, I got a lot of contacts from, from other farmers who, wanna, who wanted to explore the opportunity to work with us. And we definitely want to hear from, from others as well, because obviously the idea is to grow this. This is the first summer, and, and we'll see in, in August, September, when we do the harvest, how well we did. And then next year, we're going to expand the program. And now we head back to Europe for a fascinating project, and that is YPAC in Spain, which has developed a bio-based plastic alternative from whey to traditional plastic food packaging. And it's compostable too. 
And rather than me try and explain it all and fail, we'll hear from Dr. Jose Maria Lagaron, YPAC's project coordinator. Can you maybe give me a little bit of a background on the uh, the YPAC and, and what it was set up for? And We, we started YPAC because we know that uh, the retailers, consumers are now concerned about the end life of packaging, especially if it's made of plastic. So we started with this uh, general concern. We have been working for more than 20 years in the development of different bioplastics and, and naturally derived plastics. And then there was the additional issue of the fact that, that most of the biopackaging is not perceived uh, by industry as, as performing uh, in terms of properties like a barrier, mechanical, etc., compared to the traditional plastics derived from petroleum. So with these two things in mind, then we started YPAC as to be able to, on the one hand, to develop packaging that is consistent with the biocircular economy concept, where you take uh, waste, you don't use any, any resources that are currently used for food, so we do not compete with food, and that we use uh, to the extent possible uh, raw materials, feedstocks that are uh, waste is uh, of some kind, typically waste uh, waste that is uh, actually toxic or that can generate issues to handle it. And then we convert it into packaging, but a packaging that is performing. I mean, that it really has the properties that will allow the immediate substitution, which has always been one of the problems of biopackaging. It hasn't got uh, the right properties in terms of barrier properties, etc. So there are a number of food products that cannot be preserved using traditional or the conventional biopackaging before we started the project because they don't really perform. So the intention of YPAC is really, uh, on the one hand, to after 20 years of work, to be able to show that these materials can be scaled and can be produced using uh, conventional machinery existing in the industry. It's about the scalability, it's about biocircular economy, so using feedstocks, and it's also about developing packaging that can show the right performance for shelf life extension of foods. And the new food packaging that was just announced, that is made using whey? Yeah, cheese whey, uh, coming from the cheese making industry. Cheese whey waste is, is actually a toxic element, so the big Cheese-making companies, they have invested into post-processing of this waste so that it does not become toxic to the environment and they give some value to it, animal feed and uh, extraction of, of whey protein, etc. But many of the cheese-making industries, a small scale, a medium size, they do not have the capacity to deal with this toxic waste. This is why we selected it as one of the uh, raw material for the constitution of the packaging. Obviously, there's there's a lot of whey created in the dairy industry. How much of it mm-hmm. do you need to be able to make the packaging? I mean, is there still too much of it? Or? Uh, well, I think we have made calculations that 11 kilos of cheese whey derives one kilo of biopackaging. So that's more or less the numbers that we have now. Obviously, it's it's a good product in terms of sustainability. Does that make it economically viable as well? Yeah, it is now because the paradigm of packaging has changed. The, the consumers, uh, they when they talk to retailers, they and and we have done also consumer acceptance tests. And so when when we do a survey with them, they lo- they all love uh, this kind of packaging that uh, comes from from nature in a way or from products that could be wasted and uh, it is certainly more expensive at the moment but that's that's just uh, a time issue uh, we believe in three five years and uh, within the project we have developed uh, products made with uh, packaging made with from juice, cheese whey and also from fruit residues from the juice making industry but also uh, in another similar project in which we are also in which i'm also coordinating then what we are doing is using municipal waste uh, as a feedstock. And then, then is when it becomes a commodity, below one euro a kilo. And, and when these plants become available, uh, then, then the whole economy of this type of packaging is going to become a commodity, similar to polyolefins today. It can be used to package any product? Yeah. 
So we have two lines of packaging, one for high barrier, so typically like red meat, where you use modified atmosphere technologies to preserve the, the food, the red meat in this case, and also respiring packaging. Packaging that has uh, naturally, in the concept of the packaging, there is some sort of a micro porosity, and that uh, prevents the use of perforated films or any other type. And these two packaging types is being developed within the project. And they both have implications for shelf life as well, I believe? So the shelf life studies are currently underway. Uh, there are a number of retailers and food uh, industries uh, that are doing tests in different products, in fresh pasta, uh, for instance, in red meat, in strawberries, cucumbers, etc. So it's a very wide range of products in terms of preservation uh, needs. With the packaging toolbox that we have developed in the project with three types of tray grades plus two types of film for flow pack and leading film, then we are combining these five concepts that we have developed and a scale because we have also developed an antimicrobial and antioxidant packaging. But because of the legislation in Europe now, there is no any, any positive list for this packaging, then we have decided that we are not going to scale it until it is permitted for use. And I assume that there's also been tests on safety so that it doesn't interact with any of the products? Absolutely, yeah. We have done all the migration, global specific migration, uh, etc. And the, the products are even for allergenicity, etc. And this is all uh, tested and, and, and positive. And as far as production, uh, will that be sort of licensed out to packaging companies? Yeah. So we have licensed now the technology, the, let's say the, the recipe for the compounding to a company here in Spain called Orsenic Resins. And this company is right now doing the trials with different industries in different products from disposables to trays to injection molded cups, coffee cups, film, etc. It is commercially available. There is two grades that we have developed out of the five that are already uh, available. So they, they comply with the food contact legislation and they are ready to go. They can be put in the market tomorrow. In fact, the supermarkets are allowing the people in, in this uh, pilot experiment that they are doing to go to the supermarket and take their our packaging with the food that they typically consume. But instead of in the traditional packaging in our packaging, they can actually take it home and uh, feel the experience of using it and, and then the, you know the, they need to hopefully they will report a positive opinion on it and as far as the packaging for the consumers is concerned will it have labels on it to explain where it's come from and what to do with it this is a discussion that we are having internally we have registered the brand YPAC. Uh, the packaging comes with this stamp of the project and the idea of course, is uh, one of the retailers has uh, when they put that into the shops, they are thinking about putting a small label. They're indicating the consumers that there is an environmental benefit by taking this food in this type of packaging. But the labeling is not concerned that is within the project at the moment. So we we think that these are the end users, the the packaging companies, the ones that they need to decide how do they want to. Uh, highlight over the existing packaging uh, the benefits that uh, white pack packaging offers. And, and as far as it's obviously you mentioned that it's um, compostable, is, is that something that has to be done commercially or can people just put that in with their food bins or how does that work? Yes, okay, so the one of the differentiating features uh, is the end life scenario for this type of packaging. So the, the thing is that the characteristic of this uh, packaging is that it can biodegrade in the environment. So it can biodegrade with industrial composting. So the, the idea is that the people will throw this to the brown container with the rest of the food waste, and then it will go either to the landfills where it will degrade, or it will, all, will go into industrial composting plants where it will degrade. But in the event that they get out of the cycle and then they end up in the environment, for instance, in marine uh, or, in the, or in soil, then this material is known to biodegrade. Depending on the size and the thickness of the packaging, etc., it may take longer. 
uh, but we are doing now tests in the marine, uh, marine environment, and we are seeing how it's biodegrading, also in soil. Uh, and we are doing tests, in fact, not only in certifying bodies, but also in the sea. So we team up with uh, one of the uh, group uh, within the project is, is actually having a facilities in the, in the coast of Calpe, in Alicante, where they have divers and they go and put uh, the packaging and regularly once a week they go and, and see how it uh, biodegrades in the in, in situ. And so what's the, the next step in all of this? Are you still working on other? It seems like there's still a lot to be working on with what you're doing right now. But... So then the next step is the full certification of all of the additives so that we can uh, use them in food contact. The scalability of these byproducts or waste bio-waste derived biopaper, so biopolyesters, so that we increase, let's say, capacity. So right now, I think maybe the commercial capacity for this type of material commercially available is maybe 20,000 tons, 30,000 tons a year, which is relatively uh, small scale. But within the project, there are a number of companies that they have scaled the process. And the idea is that uh, they will keep scaling the production and the cheese whey derived biopolyester that we do is is uh, at least 30% or more cheaper than the current source of the commercial product today and uh, once this is done with with uh, municipal bio waste then it will become 90% cheaper so then we are suddenly within a euro per kilo cost then there is no reason why this material shouldn't take a full substitution because there are different grades with different properties that can be made and therefore I think uh, it should be should be possible to take the full uh, scale of manufacturing and serve uh, the market as it is today and I see this within a horizon of three to five years where full industrialization of these new biopolyesters will come into place and volumes are in enough quantities for covering the demand. And in fact, the company is doing a very nice business now with a, in different applications. For instance, one of the interesting applications is the coffee capsules and the straws and disposables that uh, today are banned or they will be banned in short. And while we get all the certifications and all the scaling capacities that will be required for really taking a significant fraction of the food packaging market. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone. Hi Jim. Another reasonably strong week in terms of price increases in the European dairy markets. Uh, the spot markets, for example, for butter, skim and whey, which were released uh, today, uh, were all showing strong increases. Uh, for example, butter was up uh, about 5.7%, up to 30.75, and skim was up about 3.8% of the week to 20.62. So these are strong increases, but they were expected because we had seen big moves up in the futures markets over the last um, two to three weeks. Uh, the initial stimulus for this was started with a buying program in the US where we saw a government buying program which took a lot of product out of the market and also saw some uh, voluntary milk reduction uh, programs happening over there as well, which really tightened the balance sheet. And um, we've seen a knock-on effect now to the, to the world markets as a result of that. We're also seeing some uh, some signs that uh, milk is slowing down in various parts of the world. For example, New Zealand was down in April by 0.8% on a milk solids basis. And we're also starting to see uh, negative numbers now on the weekly um, collections in Germany, France and, and the UK, to name but a few in, in Europe. So um, things are starting to slow down the milk collection side, which again should be supportive of these uh, higher prices. Um, still a lot of question marks over the net demand picture globally. Uh, we do still expect that to be quite negative uh, with the reduction in food service, but uh, certainly strong signs of retail demand continue to, uh, to put some support in these markets. Thanks a lot, Charlie. We'll catch up with you again next week when it will be June.
INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And as I just mentioned, next week it will be another month, another month of lockdown behind us and more signs of that easing in many countries around the world, although, of course, safety is still the number one priority. Hopefully we'll be able to start doing more enjoyable things again soon and that the economy starts to take a positive turn as well. We need some good news, that's for sure. I'm not sure if it qualifies as good news, but we will be back again next week with Podcast 85. And I can tell you on the show, we will have interviews with Christine's Food Hygiene on the importance of hard surface disinfection and hand sanitation as we emerge from the lockdown. We have an interesting interview with AAK Kamani and the Good Food Institute India. And I know it's interesting because I've already done it. And if you're an avid reader of Dairy Reporter, you may have read about a newly discovered potential essential saturated fatty acid in butter called C15. And we have an interview about that too. And that's interesting as well. So four great guests next week because the interview in India was with two people and four great guests this week as well. I'm sure there'll be plenty of news to cover over the next seven days and so until next week when I have to try and find something interesting about the number 85, maybe. I hope you have a great rest of the week and weekend. Stay safe, take care and as always, thanks for listening.